Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we just want to extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Randy. I'm the lead minister here at the church. And uh, after services, I'm going to be at a room called the Fireside Room. And I would just love to have a little bit of FaceTime with you if you are new here and uh, just hear a little bit about your story and uh, pray with you. Um, we would very much like it for you to feel at home here uh, with the Windsor Road family. So um, I'd like to extend that invitation to you after services. Our, our elders will be in that room. Our elders are the team that uh, leads and, and governs our church family. And uh, then our guest services uh, team will also be there too. So we would just love, love the opportunity to meet you. Uh, that's through the glass doors and to the right. Through the glass doors and to the left uh, is a table. It's our outreach table. And I would like to invite you. Um, so you probably know by now, our brothers and sisters in Christ at the Mount Olive Baptist Church, uh, their facility was in a terrible fire uh, just recently, and I just think it'd be nice if we could encourage um, our uh, our siblings in Christ. And so I've got some encouragement cards. They're they're blank, and so if you want to just um, write a note of love, uh, convey your prayers, and uh, it doesn't have to be one person, one card. It can be several of us signing cards and. And if you could just if you could just leave the cards in the basket there, we'll make we'll mail them. So don't worry about finding the address and so forth. Write the note before you leave and, and leave it there in the basket, and we'll uh, send that. And I um, will make sure Pastor Keith gets that at the church. So um, anyway, that's through the doors to the left, through the doors to the right, fireside room through the doors to the left. Uh, notes of encouragement, All right? Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And we have been journeying through uh, the book of Exodus, and here we're in a series within a series on the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at commandment number one, and we're going to look at commandment number two today. You'll find Exodus chapter 20 on page 61 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take that copy and put your name in it and receive it as a gift from uh, this church family. I'm going to read, actually, verses 1 through 6. Commandments 1 and 2 um, are, are really intertwined together, so much so that in some of your church background, um, your particular denomination uh, put the two together and then divide uh, the last part of the commandments. Um, so because they're associated, I'm just going to go ahead and read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
This is God's word. Hello. I am an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, idol. It's okay. I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family. I'm your bank account. I'm your sex life. I'm the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about when you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn to when you need comfort. I'm what your future can't live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me, and you look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you. But that's what you like about me. No, I'm never quite what you think I am. And that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you. But I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. Hello. I'm an idol. Now, if that article doesn't explain the second commandment, I don't know what does. It's a reading that helps us realize that idols are not just Graven images made of precious metals. It helps us understand what actually the prophet Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel chapter 14 when he talks about idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. And now, the second commandment is more than for just the Israelites. They're for us. They're for God's people today. And so we consider this second commandment. Last week, we started this series within a series by looking at the first commandment, and we learned that there is one God who wants all of me. The first commandment was given to free us from the bondage. These commandments are really about freedom. And God, in giving his word, these ten words, God wants to liberate us from the chains and shackles that bind us. And so the first commandment was given to liberate us from the slavery of false reality. So God says in the first commandment, I want your worship to be based in reality. Well, the second commandment flows from the first. I want you to worship the right God in the right way. And so the second commandment 
liberates us from the chains of a limited view of God. The second commandment frees us from putting God in a box, placing God in a little cubbyhole, thinking, okay, I'll go see God either 9 o'clock or 10.45 once a day, and I'm going to go into that space there where God is, and then, and then I'm going to leave, and God's going to stay, and the second commandment says, not so fast. That's not how, that's not, that's not who I am, God says. So as we look through this passage of Scripture here this morning, I just want to answer three major questions concerning the second commandment. It's a what, so what, now what outline. What? What exactly is this commandment saying? What's, what's God want in these verses? And then what's the significance? Why is this so important? And then how does this apply to our lives today? Now what? What? So what? Now what? And let me just let me just get right into the text here for a minute to explain why this matters. You'll notice that I read in verse 5. Do you see it? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And someone might pause and say, well, wait a minute. I thought jealousy is a bad thing. It depends on what you're jealous for. The God that we worship. You know, God, God is crazy in love with you. God cares. God, in fact, the word jealous in the Hebrew, the Old Testament comes to us by way of the Hebrew, and the, the word for jealous in Hebrew can be also translated zealous. God is zealous for us. He wants to have a relationship with us. So that's why this matters. His love is fiercely protective for his people. That's why this matters. But it also matters because this says something about ourselves. Did you notice in verses 5 and 6, it speaks about passing on the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What's that about? Well, what it's about is the impact of generational holiness. The impact of those who are older in the faith and the influence that they have. The consequences of our spiritual lives. And this is why our church needs to be multi-generational. So that our younger generations can look to the older generations and see that faith is living 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, how important that is. So that through the example, you see the third and the fourth generation, why third and fourth generation? Because four generations is generally how many generations can live at the same time. So you have children and then parents and then grandparents and then great-grandparents. And, and so that through the example of the older generation, all might be recipients of God's steadfast love, his hesed, steadfast love. So this matters because of, of God's fierce protectiveness for his people, and it matters because it's important for uh, you know, my grandson and my granddaughter and my sons to see 
faith living in, in this season of my life. And, and that's what makes this such a serious conversation. So let's get to the what. What do these verses say? Well, here's what they don't say. God is not forbidding art in this commandment. Uh, in Exodus 26, 31, there will be instructions about the making of the tabernacle, this portable temple that will accompany Israel uh, throughout the, the wilderness and into the land of promise. And in Exodus 26, 31, it says, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And then read this. It shall be made with cherubim. That, that, those are angels. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. So there's going to be woven images of angels there in the tapestry of the, uh, the linen and the, the curtain and the fabric. In 1 Kings chapter 7, 1 Kings chapter 7, when the tabernacle then becomes Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 7 speaks of images of angels, cherubim, but then also furnishings fashioned out of precious metal, almond branches, blossoms, and flowers as a part of the structure. So there'll be uh, images either stitched into the curtains or fashioned into furnishings. It's a sort of a replica of Eden. So, so art is permitted. What is forbidden, God says, is the fashioning of anything concerning his image that would be used to mediate his presence. So do not fashion an object and then treat that object as if God inhabits it. Don't worship it, don't bow before it, don't pray to it, don't sing to it, don't hope in it, don't trust in it. That's what's being forbidden. And there are two assumptions upon which this commandment is given. And the first is about God. And it's this, God reserves the right as creator and maker and redeemer and king, God reserves the right to be worshipped how he wants to be worshipped. And the second assumption deals with us, humans. And it's this, humans are wired to worship. So the commandment doesn't say, if you happen to feel the need to worship, be sure to do it this way. The commandment assumes that humans are going to worship. So it's not like we go to church and once we pull into the campus property, then, you know, the worship switch gets flipped on. And then, oh, you know, and within the next hour, depending on how long the guy goes up there, then we'll get switched off. All right? No. No, worship is an identity before it's ever an activity. We worship because we are worshipers. We, we're worshipers in search of worship objects. Uh, someone wrote, the human soul will find an object of worship either on the shelf, on the altar, in the mirror, or in heaven. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was sort of a literary mentor to C.S. Lewis, Years ago, G.K. Chesterton lived in the early 1900s, and he once said this, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. So, so you know, a man is searching for something. He may not even know what he's searching for, but he's searching for something. And, and this, is, this is how we are. We're looking to, to deposit worship somewhere. 
And we reach out to find something that we think might fix us. Something that we might think will fill the void in our heart. We're reaching out for a God. We're looking for a God. And the only question then is, is this the true God? Is this God worthy of worship? And you get the rhetoric of worship in our culture today, don't you? Now, you haven't you heard the phrase, you know, whether it's spoken of a you know, basketball court or a, a football field or a golf course or a national park or uh, a, a stock market trading room, the person in those arenas will say this, ah, this is my church. Right? Have you heard that? This is my sanctuary. This is my sanctuary. Really? Right? What's that country music song? Can I get a hallelujah? Can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through ya when I play the highway FM. Is that what it takes? Is, is that it? Is that all it is? Just turn on the radio? Isn't that interesting? It, it's, we go to a workout uh, class and, you know, and, and we're working out and we say, oh, yeah, this is my church. This is my church. No, it's not. There's a mirror in front. You're looking at yourself. But this rhetoric, though, it's a, it's a rhetoric. Why? Because we're looking, we're looking to exalt someone or something. So the question isn't, am I going to worship? The question is, who is worthy of worship? It's in our DNA. And commandment one says, I want you to direct your worship to the one true God. And you're not it. And commandment number two says, I want you to do it in the right way. I want, you to, I want you to worship the true God in the true way. I want you to worship the right God in the right way. And here's why. If you do the right thing the wrong way, you'll eventually start doing the wrong thing. See? And that takes me to this second question here. The significance of the second question commandment. The problem with idolatry, the problem with graven images is that they confuse the creator with the creation. And it causes us to forget who God is and who we are. Uh, one scholar put it this way, idolatry makes the infinite God finite, the omnipotent God weak, the all-present God local, the living God dead, the spiritual God material, the seeing God blind, the hearing God deaf. Idolatry makes God exactly the opposite of what he truly is. So to worship the right God in the wrong way testifies to the wrong God. And, and the errors of idolatry include the following. And I'll just mention a few. There are many. Here are a few. First, idolatry implies that God is finite. But God is not finite. God is infinite in every way according to his word. I mean, how can anything finite, therefore, adequately express the infinite? Is it possible to carve Mount Rushmore on one grain of sand? Is it possible to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a whistle? Years later, 
King Solomon, who built the temple in Jerusalem, will say this. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Idolatry implies that God is finite. Idolatry also implies that God can be controlled. Notice the phrase in our text, you shall not make. It's clear, isn't it? Humans have the means to make. We can make houses, cars, cities, church facilities, businesses, families, congregations. We can make reputations. We can make ourselves fit, educated, skilled. We're makers. So then how easy it is to say with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Daniel 4.30, is this not great Babylon, which I made by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. So I make it, I esteem it, I admire it, I control it. I can move it around. You can pick an idol up and you can place an idol down. You can move it or remove it. It's at your disposal. But you cannot control God. He is uncontrollable. He is all-powerful. He is untamed. And his hand will not be stayed. And the God that we can control is no God at all. Idolatry implies that God can be controlled. And, and idolatry also implies that God has needs. Uh, now, in the ancient world, I mean, Israel, let's think about how, who first heard these words. Israel went from one idol-worshiping nation, Egypt, into the wilderness, and then they were surrounded by the nations of, the, uh, of Canaanite and the Canaanite religions. And, and in, in that world, you know, the gods, they, they needed humans for one very important thing, food. Meat was a relative rarity uh, in the ancient world, and most people didn't have extra animals to slaughter, so they tended to eat meat only as a part of a ritual worship. So they'd sacrifice an animal, present, it, uh, present a drink offering, and then feast together with a family or a clan. And idolatry was an occasion of eating food and, and uh, eating the best food and drinking the best wine. And this even continued into the New Testament age. And the, God, the people needed the gods for favors, and the gods needed the people for food. And it was kind of a quid pro quo. It was transactional, mutual. You scratch their backs, they'll scratch yours. Furthermore, the ancients believed that in order to get blessings from the god for the coming growing season, either in livestock or agriculture, they needed the gods to have celestial sex for fertility. And so they believed that in order to kind of get that going, well, they needed to have sex themselves there at the temple, and it would be part of a religious ritual. Israel was surrounded by this type of thinking, and it's not hard to see why idolatry was so attractive to God's people. The religions of the world in that day, they were guaranteed, they were self-centered, they were easy, convenient, normal, pleasing, indulgent, erotic. It was a religious system made by men for men. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul deconstructs this false view of faith when he says in Athens, Acts 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Idolatry implies that God has needs. God has no needs. There's a sense in which we, there's a sense in which we can't serve God because that would imply that God has needs. Well, God doesn't have needs. God serves us. We have needs, you see. And then I want to mention that idolatry implies that faith is not necessary. You see, idols can be seen but not heard. And Israel worships the one true God who is heard but not seen. And our God is a speaking God who commands that we hear his voice and not fashion an image of him. But like the Canaanites, Israel, and ourselves, we're attracted by the allure of the visual. We like to say, well, I'm a visual learner. Or, or we like to say, seeing is believing, but biblically speaking, no, it's not. Seeing is not believing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the problem is that once we see, we stop listening. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Uh, perhaps the, the finest commentary on why this commandment is necessary is found in Exodus chapter 32, described as Israel's great sin. Just turn there, if you would. It's on page 72 of your church Bibles, Exodus 32. So after God spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel, Moses went up to the mountain to receive uh, the rest of the law. And he was gone uh, for an extended period of time. And verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they grew impatient. Where did he go? We don't even know where he went. How can God care for us without a leader? Aaron, do something. Do something. And so Aaron, Aaron, this is Aaron. He said, well, well pull the gold that all the Egyptians gave you from, uh, from when you left Egypt. And just pull the gold. They did. And Aaron, this is Moses' brother. He made a golden calf. Exodus 32, 4, 5, and 6. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink. Remember what I said earlier? And then it says, and they rose up to play. Huh. Now, that doesn't mean frisbee golf. Okay. What does it mean, Pastor? It means they had a sexual orgy. That's what it means. I mean to tell you 
the ink on the tablets weren't even dry. And this. I mean, what you need to understand is that, you know, Israel's deliverance from Egypt was a, was a retelling of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Just as God gave life in Genesis 1 and 2, God gave Israel life from the bondage of Egypt in Exodus. In, in Genesis, God spoke and creation came to be. In Exodus, God spoke and in speaking his word, Israel came to be. And as Adam and Eve were to walk in the cool of the evening with God, commune, speak together, God wanted Israel to delight in him more than anything else. He was to be their greatest delight, their only delight. No other gods, no other deities, just the Lord. And now this. And you can understand why it says in Exodus chapter 32 that when Moses came down from the mountain, verse 19, his anger burned hot. And he hurled the tablets down and they broke because the covenant had already been broken. And just as Adam and Eve gave their excuses when the Lord called them to account, you let me read verses 21 and 24 and what Aaron says to Moses. It's like, you can't be serious. And, you know, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, verse 22. You know the people. They're set on evil. I didn't do anything. It was, you know, it was the woman you gave me, like what Adam said. And, and for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, we don't even know what's become of him. And so they gave the gold to me. I threw it in the fire. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I didn't do it. What was I? This is a Laurel and Hardy movie, you know. I didn't mean to do this, Dolly. I don't even know. I threw it in the fire. I got this calf. I don't even know. Verse 20 says, Moses took the golden calf and ground it into dust, and mixed it with water, and he made the people drink it. You're looking for a calf to feed you? Well, bottoms up. And it's a picture of Israel's future because this, this idolatry would, would enslave them throughout the next centuries all the way to Babylon. Stiff-necked, hard heart, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Wow. And here's the thing. Listen about the golden calf. Where'd they get that gold? They got the gold from the Egyptians who gave it to them. God says, I'm, I'm going to make it so that they're going to just give you their gold to get you out. And so they didn't, they didn't steal the gold. They didn't buy the gold. The gold was a gift. So you see, an idol can be, it can be a gift from God that we twist and pervert into an object of worship when we confuse the gift for the giver. It can even be a good thing. Someone once said that an idol is a, is a good thing that becomes a bad thing when we make it into a God thing. And 
What a sad tale this is. Only it's not a tale. It happens. But here's the deal. Idolatry at its root is more than just wrong belief about who God is. It's wrong belief about who we are. You see, the, the second commandment was given to protect Israel's identity. And so in these verses, God says, I don't want you to fashion images to represent me. That's your job. You're my image bearer. I've identified you in Exodus 19. You're my royal possession. You're my royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And when you make a graven image, just by default, you begin thinking, well, that's my possession. That's my possession. That's my church. That's my pew. That, that's, what, that's what's happened to my worship. What's happened to my worship service? And God says in no uncertain terms, you do not have any possessions. You are a possession. You are my possession. And you are to image my name and my character and my existence throughout the earth as my royal priesthood, the privilege of royal priesthood. And so you don't get to, you don't get to define your identity according to your desires. Your desires do not define your identity. My desires define your identity. You're to reflect my reality on earth. And so when we fashion idols, we diminish God and we diminish ourselves. We diminish God by looking for an image where it doesn't exist. That's idolatry. And then in the other case, we ignore God's image where it does exist, like our neighbor. We're God's statues in the world, marking out the planet as his and his alone. He does not need our help in fashioning more images. He desires our witness and testimony. And, and church family, let me say this. When it comes to displaying the reality of God in this world, please hear me. It is more important for this world to see the cross on your shoulder as you sacrifice and serve and love than it is to see any cross on a roof. What makes worship inspirational is not the color of the paint in this room, but the fire of God's love burning in your heart. And when God's people have carried their crosses daily, when you've taken a hit without revenge, when you successfully have had that difficult conversation, when you serve anonymously, when you put in a good word for Christ, what happens weekly is this boiling over of passion and zeal and thirst for God, and that is more attractive than anything else. Amen? Yeah. Now what? Well, let's go back to, hello, I'm an idol. See, an idol is anything that I turn to for help when God has told me to turn to him for help. Ezekiel 14 challenged Israel about harboring these idols of the heart, and we should be challenged too. So here are some questions to identify if there are any idols in our hearts. Questions like, what disappoints you? 
What disappoints you? Have you ever thought that our disappointments are God's way of reminding us that there are idols in our lives that need to be dealt with? What do you complain about the most? You, if you constantly complain about your financial situation, maybe money's become too important for you. If you constantly complain about lack of respect in the office, maybe what other people think about you matters more than it should. What we complain about reveals what really matters to us and what has power over us. Where do you make financial sacrifices? And where your money goes reveals how much you trust the one true God. And it is here that I just remain so grateful to the Lord for his work and growth in your life in this particular area. What worries you? What is renting space in your brain? You care about it so much, you replay it over and over and over, and whatever, whatever it is that keeps you awake has the potential to be an idol. Where's your sanctuary? Where's your sanctuary? Where do you go when you're hurting? Let's say it's been a terrible day at the office, and you come home, and where do you go? Where do you go? Do you go to social media? Do you go to the refrigerator? Where do you look for emotional rescue? What infuriates you? You know, someone says, or someone does something to you and you, you kind of you just really feel angry and, and, and you say, oh, that, that person just pushes my buttons. Why do you have those buttons? Hmm? Well, that's not the issue. Well, let's make that the issue. See, could those be idols? What are your dreams? What are your dreams? If, if nightmares are revealing, so are daydreams. The, the place we choose our imagination to go. What fantasy has a grip on you? Who is ruling me? So who, so who is the master of this pattern of thought, word, and deed? So according to the Bible, we're all religious. We're either going to worship the one true God or a weak pretender. With this in mind, people don't have needs. They have lords, masters, and gods. So who other than the true God is my God? Now, if I haven't gotten personal enough, um, I'd like to ask for your help in this exercise. And I mean this because there's a sense in which we can understand these questions individually. I'd like for us to think about it corporately as a church. And, and in other words, I'd like for us to be able to, to, to make these hidden idols of the heart matters of prayer. Um, and so here's what I'd like to ask us to do. Uh, in the seats are blank index cards. And I would like to ask you to uh, don't put your name on it at all. But I would like to ask you to answer this question. Here it is. Um, what area of your life is a struggle that keeps you from giving all of yourself to God or enslaves you to some degree? What area in your life is a struggle that keeps you from giving all of yourself to God or enslaves you to some degree?
Let's make that a matter of prayer. Just write one thing, the first thing that came to your mind. Write that down. Don't put your name on it. And then when the offering is passed, let's make that an, let's, let's give that, surrender that idol to the Lord. And, and so, so when the offering plate is passed, put it face down. And in the coming weeks, as our staff prays and our elders pray, we'll, and we'll share those and make those a matter of prayer with our congregation. Here's the deal. Either offer it up to God and surrender to him for his redemptive purposes and to use as he wants, either do that or else he will take it. And when he takes it, he will grind it up, mix it with water, and make us drink it. It will be bitter. It's a, I mean, it's a choice. What are we going to do? I've had the opportunity to preach in Kathmandu, Nepal, a couple of times. And when I was last in Nepal, I had this interpreter. And when I preached, he stood right next to me. And I was there with the message and he was there with the language. And his job was to convey the word to the listeners. And he did his best to let my words from the word come through him. And he was not at liberty to embellish or subtract. When I gestured, he gestured. And as my volume increased, uh, his volume increased. And when I got quiet, he got quiet. When Jesus walked this earth, He was interpreting his father. When his father got louder, Jesus got louder. When his father gestured, Jesus gestured. Jesus was so in sync with his heavenly father that he could declare in John 14, 11, I am in the father and the father is in me. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus, the resurrected and reigning son of God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews 1.3. The exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The, the image of God is perfectly and incomparably displayed through his son, Jesus. You want to know who God is like? Look to Jesus. And each week, we remember him in worship. And by remembering who he is, we're reminded of who we are. In worship, in song, in teaching, and by these physical symbols that we're going to be celebrating here shortly. The bread and the cup, memory aids, emblems which Jesus commanded his people to have as a part of worship. We don't worship the bread and the cup. We worship the one represented by the bread and the cup. The bread, Jesus' body, punished for us, broken on the cross, raised in glory. The cup, his very life. Our worship in song and teaching and communion reminds us we don't need a graven image to get to God. 
We simply need the promise of Christ who said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you, what? Rest. Amen.